So uh, we've had you in the past on our show, and we've discussed different things, um, such as Flat Earth and updates on what's going on with the Mars exploration. Uh, we are celebrating 50 years of the moon landing, and I originally contacted you because of um, two movies. I, I saw the first ridiculous one that it wasn't even well done. Uh, if you're going to make a conspiracy theory movie, at least um, do your best. It was it was actually very cheaply done. And then the guy who was supposed to be pretending to go to the moon, I wouldn't even trust him with my dog. Um, and the whole idea was that there was a CIA group who was uh, trying to get um, footage of the moon landing without being in the moon because they ran out of time or money to be able to do it. And that, um, so it was, it was like a, a recreation of what could have happened, um, uh, before the moon landing. And you sent me a video where, um, a filmmaker shows that there's a lot of problems with, um, th that being a, a possibility. Um, but can you tell us what was your experience when, um, when the moon landing happened? Um, I don't, I don't mean to uh, assume that, that you were around, but... Uh... No, I was. <laughs> and uh, without doing any math, I was about nine years old when we landed on the moon. Um, and it was just very, very exciting because, um, you know, growing up in that age, it was a lot of space was happening. And that was... The only reason they would haul a TV into your classroom in those days was to watch something going on in space. So it was just a huge deal. And to see us land on the moon, you're like, okay, this is the future. We really are going to space. And I, and I think a lot of people my age, we expected we'd be doing vacations in space by now. You know, it was the space age, which we kind of took a detour and did other things instead. Um, You know, nobody saw personal computers coming or cell phones or any of the technology that we, we hang around with now. And, uh, but we didn't go to space. That didn't happen. So, you know, I, I get really enthusiastic, especially when I'm talking to kids. And they often ask me, uh, have I been to space? Because I guess I'm so excited about it. And I go, no, I'm still waiting for my first ride. <laughs> and I can't believe it's been 50 years. But... Uh, That was just, it was science fiction. It was, it was just amazing stuff to watch. So the second movie I watched was uh, First Man. The first one was Project Avalanche. And I don't recommend it. There was a French one that was similar. <laughs> But First Man was actually really good. And it showed how difficult it was and how easy it was to get to the moon. In the sense of like once you get the physics figured out and you do multiple tests on Earth, then it's just kind of like a, a one-shot deal to do it. But my concern for the moon landing being real is that as a cameraman, if you're showing live feed, and they did have a couple of accidents before they got there, what would have happened if, as, a, as they're sending the signal and the crew blows up or the ship blows up? Wasn't that really risky to, to be doing it uh, live? Could it have been that maybe they, they recorded it days before or something or they had a button like in live TV where it's a five-minute delay? Because it would have been very traumatic to see everybody die. Like I saw everybody die during the um, 
what was the one in, in 1985? The Challenger, yep. I saw that on TV as a kid, and it was traumatic. So just imagine having the moon landing go like that. Yeah, and Challenger did affect. I, I talked to a number of people, and, uh, you know, I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd go up to space. And they go, no, I saw Challenger. And I go, oh, okay, I, you know, I, I understand that. And, and it is risky, and it was risky, although the risky parts of space travel really are takeoff and landing. Um, the, you know, if, if they were going, if some bad thing were going to happen, it would have been on the landing. Um, so you could have crashed, you could have, they didn't have a whole lot of fuel left on board. Um, so, you know, explosions could have happened when you took back off again. Um, there are opportunities for that, but generally if you, if you're not doing takeoff and landing, the rest of it's pretty good. Um. So once they were actually on the moon, uh, that was good, and then that was probably going to be good until they took off. Um, and then, of course, coming back through the Earth's atmosphere is another huge problem. And uh, I don't, you're not going to remember probably, but when they brought Apollo 13 back, they had no idea how much damage that heat shield on the bottom had taken during their actual explosion. And it was. An, uh, a really long radio blackout. Like they were starting to sweat quite a bit on that because, you know, we're waiting for them to come back, waiting to see the parachutes, and it just took a long time. And sometimes you think, well, maybe it's just feeling long because, you know, we're so anxious about it, but it actually was a long time before they could get them back on the radio and say, hi, uh, you guys are still with us, right? And So, yeah, I mean, it was risky, but... Um, and we didn't have, I want to say there wasn't, I think the live part of the landing was purely radio. I think later we got back the video on that. I'm not, I don't remember, and I'd have to go look, that they were actually showing, because I don't think they had a good way to transmit that. So while they recorded their landing, I think all we were hearing was the audio at that time. That, that answers my question, because I'm like, how did they bounce off a signal from the moon live like it seemed like the technology wasn't there and maybe it's hollywood that there's the problem because they always show you in the movies that there's a family sitting in front of the tv set and they're watching people land on the moon like that's impossible like they didn't have yeah even now it would be difficult to transmit from the moon to here yeah that would be a challenge and so the camera that you saw neil step down on that he actually uh pulled the chain to and you may have seen this in first man to let that fold down and that camera was talking to one of our deep space network dishes. In fact, it was talking to Australia. And so they were using a giant radio telescope to listen for the signal from that camera. So it wasn't even beamed back in the way that we would think like satellite TV or something comes to us today. They, they actually had to use a very large radio dish. And, uh, and then they had to do some electronic stuff to, so they could take it from the radio dish to actually put it out to broadcast. So, yeah, that, that wasn't easy, and it was really primitive technology <laughs> in so many ways. Um, and, and you can see that. I mean, some of the footage we see now, too, has been cleaned up quite a bit. You know, people have gone back and taken out some of the noise and, you know, just shined it up a bit. And You know, it, it didn't look good, but we were, this was 1969, and we were kind of used to TV from strange weird places even if you were doing a transatlantic broadcast it wasn't perfect 
you know, now we're really used to stuff looking good. And uh, I don't even know if a lot of times when they're reporting, even the, the some of the satellite connections now don't have the time lag they used to have. But So it's, it's amazing how far it's come. But, yeah, the, some of the stuff, you, when you see it in the movies, they're... They're showing you things that were recorded, but we weren't getting that live. Because, yeah, that would have been tough. It goes back to my line about ancient aliens and all these um, problematic programs where they they have no faith in humanity. So the aliens, the, the conspiracies, they're the ones that drive progress, not human beings. And these are people that don't even know how the radio signal works. <laughs> and so of course it has to be the aliens or of course it was a hoax because it's amazing that we can transmit even the a cell uh cell phone um signal is is wild that we're all uh, getting uh waves all around and that it works um sometimes you get like an old radio or some old uh television equipment and you turn it on and, it's, and it seems almost magical but it's, it's there. We have the ability to take these forces of nature and and make them work for our purposes. And somehow now people are saying, "Oh, it's, it's all fake." How? Like we're actually very fortunate to have the ability to to figure these things out. Or even the weirder stuff with the flat Earth, where everything is is super uh, fantastical, and that we are only getting a small piece of this amazing stuff. It's like. Well, that's just overboard. We have amazing things, but they say that even the sun is fake and everything's fake. And so um, do you experience that with children now? Like as you give presentations, are they so in the sci-fi mode or in the CGI mode that, that they're not even willing to, to try to figure out the world that has already been figured out for them or has already been fantasized so much that they have a hard time processing information? I think part of the problem is we really do a, a poor job of teaching science in a way that, that's understandable. You know, nobody needs to all learn quantum physics. You know, that's not useful for most people. But it is useful to learn sort of the basics of how things work. And we do a lousy job of teaching that. Um, and so a lot of the knowledge is so specialized that, you know, if you ask people, where does your electricity come from, they say the wall. And so, okay, you go, no, that's not, I mean, it, yes, it does, but <laughs> there's a process to get it there. And definitely cell phones are magic for most people. Um, so it would be interesting, and, and maybe I ought to ask an engineer friend to, to do something like this, to go through the entire process and say, okay, when I speak into this microphone, um, what happens to my voice that then can translate that to whatever electrons are going to travel around and how does that get reassembled at the end and sort of put it out in a little, you know, this box, this box, and then this process so that you could understand what goes on. Because otherwise it's totally magic. I can talk to you, you can talk to me, and we don't even know how this connection gets made. We just know we open the app on our phone or on our PC and poof, it happens. Um, I was talking to somebody about, you know, using Google Maps as you're driving to avoid traffic. And they said, oh, how does Google do that? They would have to have sensors all along the roadway. And I go, well, they do. It's called all the phones that you're carrying. They're all telling them what's going on. And people just don't realize, you know, the uses and the information that's flowing. 
And so it's it's people really have a fundamental misunderstanding, and, it, and then it becomes magic. So that's that's actually a famous science fiction corollary: is that any sufficiently advanced technology is magic. And certainly, if you went back a hundred years with a laptop, you'd get you know burned at the stake or whatever, because that's magic, and you're obviously doing witchcraft. Um, so yeah, I have people. I take telescopes out at night, right? We have star parties. We set them up. And, and people think a telescope is a complicated piece of equipment. And I actually encourage kids. I said, here, look, look down the tube. It's an empty tube. There's a mirror there. That's all that's in here. It's really a simple device. And uh, so, yeah, just it would be good if kids knew more of the basics of how things work. And that way they don't all have to know all the specifics, but at least it would be less magical. So tell me how it works. Um we're celebrating 60 years of NASA and 50 years of landing on the moon. So they only had 10 years to prepare for this? Or was there another um, aerospace agency before they were created? Oh, what was NASA before they were NASA? I mean, there was, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, the Air Force was doing some things and they just really needed to bring together, I think, all the different um, people that were working on it. Shoot, that's a good question, because there was an agency that was out there before NASA. And just offhand, I can't remember, because I wasn't around for that part. Well, I'm looking it up, especially since now we have the the Space Force that is coming up. Um, oh, my gosh. What do you think about that? That is so goofy. I mean, we essentially have a Space Force. Um, especially the Air Force maintains a pretty good presence in space. Um, a lot of people do not remember that the shuttle Atlantis was basically sort of uh, tricked out a little bit extra for the Air Force, and they would go up. Some of those flights were classified missions. And so, you know, they were just kind of quietly done, and nobody talked about them. But um, And now they have an unmanned plane that goes up and stays up, or an unmanned spacecraft, for months at a time. And they don't tell you what it does. People guess, but... You know, they don't tell you so. And you, you know, the military is always interested in space because it's the high ground. And that's what their aim is always to control. So one interesting thing, though, they love technology as much as anyone. And, of course, they control GPS. And so one of the re reasons other countries are launching their own GPS constellations is because if we're at war with somebody, we cut how good that GPS signal is for the rest of you. The military does not want just everybody getting good location data. So other people are putting up their own satellites to get their own data, not using our stuff. But they also worry that it's pretty easy to disable satellites. You know, every now and then somebody crashes one or blows one up just to demonstrate that. And so they're actually teaching celestial navigation uh, at the Naval Academy again, so that you don't have to depend on GPS. And uh, that that's kind of an interesting, what's what's new again was what was old, and comes back around. Before NASA was NACA, National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, and it was made, it started in March 3rd, 1915. So it's interesting that even back then, when it hasn't been that long, when from the airplane being um, invented, they were already thinking about uh, space, and then it became NASA later. But um, you always wonder, like, why only certain countries 
are involved in space exploration, is it really have to do with money or is it's it money. Is there a crowded yeah. field? It's money. Yeah. It, it's money. Um, India is getting into it. And, and of course they had the experience of landing on the moon. They just can't talk to their lander. Apparently whatever, you know, thing went wrong there, um, which they'll probably figure out and improve on the next time. But, uh, it is, it's a tremendous amount of money, although it's getting cheaper. And so I think you will see more people, uh, crowding into it. I mean, for example, uh, and people do it as much for status as they do anything else. So India not only wants to have their own satellites, they want to launch them themselves as well. Well, so, you know, them and Pakistan have always had an interesting relationship. So you can imagine that Pakistan might say, well, if India can do it, we ought to be able to do it. And so next thing you know, and of course the United States started things and then Russia and then the Europeans didn't want us to be the only people who could do that, so they've got their own space agency, but they do it as a as a club. So they have the European Space Agency. But yeah, it, it's partly prestige and partly military because, again, it's where you want to control if you want control over, you know, the, what battlefields might come up in the future. Of course, you're not supposed to do any of that in space, but... Uh, Military people aren't paid to think that way, so. Of course, the the alien um, conspiracy theorists and aficionados might be going crazy because if if they're preparing for war in space, that means there must be something coming, or they they know something we don't we don't. Um, I I actually um, have you heard of the storming uh, Area Fifty One? Uh yeah. Did anything actually happen on that day? It was. You know, I didn't know if anybody actually showed up there. I thought it was coming. I didn't think it already had happened. But the idea was that people are so fanatical about finding out what's going on over there that they decided to storm it. And then the people from the town, they're like, well, it's turning into a festival. So then people, if people come, it is controlled and it's not just uh, you know, chaos. So then it turned into Woodstock. And I don't know <laughs> if it actually, they were able to pull it off, but... Uh, so there's a big interest in uh, declassifying stuff and, and letting people know about, you know, where the aliens are at and things like that. And um, I'm going to make a, a confession in this show, and I want to see what you think. Um, when I was a child, I actually saw a, a UFO. And it was very strange because I, I lived in northern Mexico, and we could see a little light in the distance. And then we got our binoculars, and close to this hill, there was a spinning ball. It was like a shiny object, and then like little lasers of different colors were coming off of it. And to this day, I still don't believe in, in UFOs or alien aircraft, because to me, it, may, it would make more sense that it was some type of uh, military experiment or American-slash-Mexican uh, collaboration for uh, some type of aircraft like the assuming that everything is aliens to me is very problematic and the true ufo is an an identified flying object um is is there stuff that you're aware of that now that we know it was an experiment or something and that that's how people ended up with those ideas there are probably more than a few of those i mean over the years they've tested a lot of really strange aircraft and, uh, 
You know, you can get some pretty weird reflections if you're doing things and maybe you have some yet reflective balloons up or something like that, man. You can get some funky things going on. Uh, the military also has tested a lot of laser stuff over the years. Um, you know, astronomers now use lasers to create um, an artificial point of light that they use to correct the view through their telescopes. And that's fairly sophisticated stuff. They actually deform the mirror of the telescope to match the twinkling of the atmosphere, and they can sharpen the view. Well, when they started thinking about doing that, somebody asked somebody in the military, and they go, ha, 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 yeah, we've already been doing that. So, because they were thinking about how to keep your laser beam focused when it's going through the atmosphere, because otherwise the atmosphere scatters the beam and makes it big and wide. So they've done lots of experiments, and I don't doubt that, that more than a few sightings were things like that. Um, it's also true that there are a lot of things that you can see, and you can't tell what you're seeing to save your life. And unless, you know, it, it's really fun sometimes to, to, when you do figure it out, to say, wow, that totally didn't look like that. It looked like something else completely. So it's, it's pretty easy to get hosed, and your eyes are terrible at night. They can't tell you distance worth a lick. Um, you know, people report uh, shooting stars, uh, meteorites coming in, and they're usually convinced they're right over their head. And if you tell them, no, it's 20, 30, 40 miles high, they go, no, it couldn't possibly have been. It had to be closer. Uh, you know, no, it didn't. But So it's really tough sometimes to know what you're looking at. And so people see things that are unidentified. Yeah, I'm with you. It's, it's fine for it to be unidentified. It's, uh, you know, aliens. I tell people there are every night, and it's getting worse now. There are people out there photographing the sky with really good equipment. Um, there's a couple guys who can take a picture of the space station when it passes over, and you can see the astronaut working outside. That's amazing. So they would take some really nice pictures of alien spacecraft. There are a couple of guys who make it their specialty to chase down uh, the classified satellites. They get launched, and the military does not admit to where they're going or into what orbit. And these guys go track them down and find them and, uh, and take pictures of them. And the first time they did that, they had a visit from somebody in the military saying, how the heck did you do that? And they tell them, and, oh, well, okay. So, but people enjoy doing that because they don't like secret stuff, and so they're trying really hard to basically out the secret stuff as best they can. So, and, and that's so. my issue with the with the moon landing uh, hoax that um, celebrities like Joe Rogan would push is that what is the benefit, and why would um, it be that after 50 years there nothing has come out with with hundreds of people working on it. Somebody would have slipped up. Somebody would have gotten um, frustrated with the lie and and gotten the information out. And and again, what is the benefit of lying to a group of people when the whole point is that we're trying to push science forward? If it yeah. was only for for fame or to show that they were more skilled than the Russians, something like that, then um, that's the problem. Is like there's an assumption that the government is evil. And that the scientists are in it, instead of assuming no, they were actually tried it and it worked. Like, so so it's always like, I don't know if you heard. I don't know if it's, it's like a theory that the easiest answer to a question 
is most likely the answer as compared to the more complicated one. Yeah. Um, but was there any fear of, of the unknown? Did they have guns with them? Like, what if there was a monster on the other side of the moon? Like, uh, did anybody even, well, your knowledge of of the Spain, the moon landing, was there any extra caution that they took for unforeseen issues? Well, they, they, we'd already been around the backside um, uh, more than once. The Russians actually were the first ones to, to get around the backside of the moon, which is why... The craters over there all have Russian names. Um, so we kind of knew that. We'd landed several things on the moon, so we kind of had some idea that at least you could land. Um, there were a lot of unknowns. One was how deep does the powder on top go? And if you put something heavy on it, how deep will you sink? And that was, if you listen to Neil's chatter when he ca came down the ladder, that was one of his observations was that the pads were sitting on top of the ground. Because they weren't entirely sure that that would be true. And it would have been really embarrassing to step off the lander and go like, you know, three feet down in the ground or something. So they wanted to make sure it was a solid surface. Uh, they actually did worry about microbes. And so they quarantined those guys for two weeks after they came back. And looking back, you know, it kind of seems a bit silly because the moon is pretty dead. But on the other hand, we find life on Earth, you know, miles deep in the rocks. So... Uh, you know, they're, maybe it's not so unreasonable, but uh, they were they were sincerely concerned about that. So they kept them in a box, basically, living in a little trailer for two weeks to make sure that they weren't coming down with any germs that could have possibly come from the moon. Um, a, a good movie on that, by the way. Michael Crichton, before he did Jurassic Park, he did a, one called The Andromeda Strain, which was basically about that, some either space rock or whatever, brings some microbe to Earth. And, of course, we have no defense against such a thing. And it's, of course, horrifically uh, fatal. So, anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a good thriller uh, movie on that because it's creepy because you can't see. Like, the giant dinosaurs you could see coming, but a microbe, you can't see it, so it's extra creepy. But um, So that was something odd that they did worry about. They worried real hard about their suits and... Sometimes the guys got a little enthusiastic, especially on the later missions where they would kind of get going, hopping fast, and the guys at NASA were like, please don't do that, because if you fall down and get a hole in that suit, that's not good either. Um, it turned out that the moon dust was more abrasive than they thought it would be. Um, it really wore out their Kevlar suits. Um, and it turned out, and this doesn't get talked a lot about either because the astronauts are heroes and they're really great guys and we did this thing. They were coughing like crazy, a lot of them, especially when they were still in the lunar module because they would bring that dust in and that dust is like shards of glass and it's very abrasive to your lungs. So it, it was not uh, an easy atmosphere and to clean it up was really hard. So basically, it was good that they could make the lunar module dirty and then leave that when they went back to the uh, to the main command module. So there were lots of challenges that you know were some expected, some unexpected. Um, on landing, you know, the computer had too many instructions coming at it. It had not the computing power of probably your, you know, Echo or you know whatever thing you have that turns off and on lights automatically. So, you know, we didn't, I, I don't, well, no, you didn't have a four-function calculator then. <laughs> I 
I mean, imagine the day that you did not have, you know, in school, you didn't have, they didn't require TI calculators because they didn't make them. And so, you know, we really did go with bare, you know, bare skins and stone knives. Um, and, and in a lot of senses before we were ready. And I think that's part of the reason we didn't go back because we weren't doing it in any kind of sustainable or way that you could build upon the things. They were all just one-off visits, and they were hard to do and painful to do and super expensive. So after a while, it was kind of like, okay, we've done enough of that. And nobody had a reason to be there. So, And I'm still not sure we have a reason as human beings to go back, but um, there's still plenty of enthusiasm for doing that, so... You know, the uh, Indian mission was to land, well, it did land in a crater that's suspected to have a fair bit of water content. And so that's something that they'll investigate from orbit as best they can, but um, they were hoping to do some on-the-ground uh, measurements as well. And again, it's a testament to, so the Indians are there in orbit. They can look down and see things on the ground. Um, if the Indians want to make sure we landed in 1969, they can find the remnants of the landers on the moon. They can see the tracks that people left. And uh, one of the more interesting things we left on the moon were some reflective boxes that have the property of you shoot a light beam in and it comes back out the same direction you shot it in. And we laser range the moon. Um, people bounce lasers that start on telescopes on Earth bounce it off the moon and the beam comes back to see how far away the moon is exactly. And so we still use those that were left there on the moon. But uh, but anyway, there's, uh, yeah, it would be hard to lie because first I would have thought the Russians would have outed us right then. And then the Chinese, you know, have been to the moon and they're presently on the backside with their rover. Uh, you hardly hear about that in the U.S. press, but it's actually a pretty... Uh, pretty successful mission because it's gone through several lunar nights and it's a two week long night and it gets cold and it's hard to keep your electronics going so they've done a pretty outstanding job keeping their little rover going for a while so yeah there's there's enough people out there and doing stuff that if uh, somebody wanted to say hey you guys didn't really come here um they could do that well we want to thank you for being on the show um i know that um you know the topic of the show is going to be the the moon landing and the the debunking the hoax. Um, is there anything else you can tell our audience that um, that is just so silly to think that everything is a conspiracy and everything uh, we're being lied about? And there's things that don't even like again. There's no benefit. Like, um, but there is benefit if if America can show that they're more powerful or more capable than other countries would be scared of, of us. Do you think that a lot of it was type of macho, um, you know, sh show, showed of, uh, a show of strength and, and power? Or was it this, like, genuine, you know, we need to do this for the sake of humanity? Well, I think they, I mean, there was definitely a huge um, push to do it, to show that we, we could do it. We were so embarrassed uh, after Sputnik and I, I was not old enough quite to get this, but people say that when they showed up for school the next week after that, their teacher said, you know what, we're going to learn science now. We were just so embarrassed that they got something up. And then after that, they had a whole string of firsts. They had the first uh, person. They had the first spacewalk. 
So we were really feeling like, oh my gosh, we're so far behind the ball. And the military guys are saying, oh man, if they can control that space, then they could threaten us any which way. So it was very important militarily and for that, yeah, oh, we're America. We should be. And you have to remember that back then those ideologies were competing too. You know, is socialism a better way to go than capitalism? And so for the capitalist country to to be second place like that was just intolerable. So, yeah, there was a lot of that. That was a lot of the push, and that justified the the spending. I mean, I don't think they actually did anything other than say, give us as much money as it takes, which you totally couldn't get away with that now. So, yeah, there was a huge amount of that. I mean, in the end, I think... The, the humanity part of it just came. I don't know that the military guys really expected that. Because when those guys came back and after they let them out of the two-week uh, isolation, everybody on the planet was welcoming them for parades because the feeling wasn't that America had done it. The feeling truly became, we humans did this. We Look at this. We, lie, we walked on the moon. That's amazing. And so that part of it came secondarily, but it, I think, became more than it would have been. So that was kind of the fun benefit that people saw it as a good thing. And uh, I know Neil Tyson likes to say that those years when we were going to space and when we took those first pictures where we could see the entire planet, and that was the one of the Apollo, I think it was eight that went to the moon and back around and just to figure eight, took that uh, marble earth picture and you look back and it's one planet there are no lines or divisions for countries and it's just hanging there in space and then you get a sense of holy heck we are all in this together and that's the years that the EPA got started that a lot of uh, things were again we started taking better care we cleaned up our water and our air and so if it gives us that perspective that's just a great thing but it, I, it did become more than it was at the start. But it was, yeah, the push came from, oh, my gosh, we cannot be second in technology or in military. So the Russians, bless their hearts, tried really hard. Um, Their Werner von Braun dude actually died right in the middle of their push to get to the moon themselves, and that really hurt them. Um, They were trying to launch a spacecraft that looked very much like the Falcon Heavy. It had, like, 28 engines or something, And they could not, with the technology of the day, get all those engines to work together. And they ended up blowing them all up. Um, The only reason the Falcon Heavy works is that we have a lot better computers today. So that's kind of interesting that, you know, technology, again, comes back around to the same idea, but we weren't ready for it when they were trying it. But they, they were trying. They actually launched, and again, this isn't covered in school, they launched a craft that was going to land with no people, but their intent was to pick up a sample from the moon and get it back before the Apollo 11 guys got back to say, look, we brought a moon rock back first. I mean, that's how badly everybody wanted to be first. And and unfortunately, that actually crashed. So, you know, it was a huge we want to be first thing and, and prove that our way of doing things, which I don't think it really had anything to do with it, but, you know, we had some pretty good people and they had some pretty good people. So, but again, there are some fascinating stories um, that didn't come out of the Soviet Union until, you know, things changed there. 
Uh, if you ever want a really gritty story about what it was like to be an astronaut, um, the first guy that walked in space, when they came home, their spacecraft went off target and they ended up in Siberia. And they spent a couple nights sitting in their capsule, freezing, trying to stay warm before somebody could come rescue them. And so it, it was like such a contrast. They're sitting there thinking, I, was the, I just walked in space and now I'm sitting here freezing in Siberia. <laughs> and so... And literally people had to come like almost with dog sleds to get them. So uh, there was so much going on and we were pushing the envelope so hard. But, uh, but at the same time, we're so competitive as a species. That's one of the things that, one of our characteristics. It's driven us to inhabit the whole planet, to do some amazing things. And it's, I think, good when we can challenge our, or channel our, our competitiveness in, in positive ways rather than sometimes the, the negative things that we end up doing.